learning. We've all experienced it, but how does it happen? More importantly, how do we create powerful learning experiences that change people's lives? In this podcast, we'll explore the world of adult career change education, from learning theories to classroom experiences to the kinds of people who make life-changing education possible. So come learn with us. This is the future of professional education, powered by HackerU. Hi, and thanks for joining. I'm Sean Dagoni-Clark. I'm the Senior Director of Education for HackerU, where we transform lives by educating global learners for the digital careers of tomorrow. And we do that by creating accelerated learning programs, you may know these as boot camps, for adults in the fields of cybersecurity and digital marketing and design and data science and full stack web engineering, and there's more to come. And so while we're creating these transformative learning experiences, it's important to think about how we educate and how we can educate best. Best would be in air quotes if you can see me. And so we do this through application of what we call the Hacker U Educational Principles. And so this episode of the podcast is going to be dedicated to those. It's going to talk about what those principles are, what they mean, and then how we can apply them in a learning experience to create truly transformational learning. So let's just start by listing those educational principles. They are learning is active, learning is scaffolded, learning is measurable, and learning is intentional. And we're actually going to apply that first one, learning is active, throughout this podcast. So before we get started, I just read off the educational principles. Let's start by thinking about what that first one means. Learning is active. What does that mean? So take a moment and pause the podcast, and I will be here when you get back. So that's a technique called prediction. It's used in the classroom. We teach it to our teachers, and we ask that they get our students thinking about what things mean before they've actually learned them. That's actually a way to prime the brain, and that will relate to learning is intentional later on in this episode. But let's start with learning is active. What does learning is active mean? So it doesn't mean that the students are physically moving, although I will say that physical movement is actually really beneficial for learning. It actually increases the memory that you're able to retain. So our students would actually be better off if we got them treadmills instead of chairs. But let's think about what active learning actually means, right? So active learning is, it, it draws from the educational theory of constructivism. That's the theory that the vast majority of today's educators use to describe learning, which is that it says that learners have to do a lot more than just take information in. They have to engage with it very actively in order to make meaning from it. And so that's the reason that it's called constructivism, is that it comes from the notion of knowledge construction which is different from transfer of knowledge from one brain to another. It's saying that the brain actually has to work with that information in order to make it permanent. And so working with that information is what we're talking about when we talk about active learning. 
It's creating an opportunity for students to actively build their knowledge, even if they're not the person leading the class, especially if they're not the person leading the class. Most students are not leading the class. So constructivism it basically says that you have to struggle with information in order to learn it. And this is something that I actually tell our teachers to tell our students. I tell this to my kids. Learning is really hard. When you're learning effectively, it's not easy. And so struggling with the information, though, is the way that you actually create that deeper understanding and more durable understanding and durable memory in your brain. It doesn't happen just by listening. Now, this is not to say that we should just do away with lectures. Lectures are very effective in conveying information, but it's not enough to create deep understanding and skills. And so if you think about your experience learning, you've probably been in lectures at some point in your career or in your student in your learning career, and you've probably had the experience of watching an instructor tell you stuff that you really had trouble understanding. It's new information, you don't know how to process it, you can't make sense of it, right? And so then, potentially, if they handled the learning experience well, they would then move from that lecture into a working session, maybe with a TA, where you would really engage with that material. So we're not saying that we should uh, remove lecture from our student experience. What we're saying is that the lecture is only a part of that student experience and that what comes after the lecture is going to be just as important as the lecture in creating that durable understanding and durable memory. And so the advice that we give to our teachers is to make the classroom an active learning environment and you do that by incorporating techniques that we teach such as prediction which we used in this podcast just before. Asking the students to think forward about something that they don't know yet is going to actually engage them much more deeply with the material and also create a more active learning experience that will lead to more durable understanding. It actually creates neural pathways in the brain that lead to better memory. There are obviously other techniques. We tell our teachers to ask questions of the students, to generate conversation, to get students involved in partnering and in group work and all sorts of other things. There's techniques like wait time that we teach, which is sort of similar to what we did with the pause earlier, where a teacher asks a question and then says to the students, don't answer that yet. I want you to just wait and think about that for a little bit, and then we'll get some answers. And then they don't fill that dead air with their voice. They wait for the students to really formulate an answer. And in doing so, the students have a more active learning experience. A way that I like to put this in perspective for teachers is that when you're lecturing, when you're a teacher and you're in front of a class lecturing, you feel like it's a highly active class, but it's actually only active for the person who's lecturing, unless you do more. The people who are watching it may just be blankly listening. They may not be learning. And so what we need to do is to involve them in the learning experience because they can't blankly listen when they're engaged. Okay, let's think ahead again. What is learning is scaffolded about? Give yourself a few seconds and just think that through.
Hopefully you actually did think that through. And hopefully you came up with something like the idea of an actual scaffold, right? And you may not know quite what that means in the sphere of learning, but the notion of building a scaffold outside a building to raise your ability to build up maybe or to support you as you work on the sides or whatever that is. I'm clearly not in construction. So what we're talking about here though is something very similar to that just in your brain instead of in physical space. And it's the notion of building on existing knowledge, building on mental models. So a mental model is a framework of information. It's not something that you could find on an MRI or something like that, but it's a way of sort of conceiving of how you understand things, the mental map of your understanding. And so if you were able to draw those things out, like a map or a flowchart, you would be able to illustrate the learner's place in the learning journey. And so scaffolding says that what we want to do is understand those mental models as educators and build our learning experiences on top of them. So Piaget had his theory of cognitive development with the terms assimilation and accommodation. Assimilation means fitting new knowledge into existing structures. And accommodation is reconceiving those structures to account for new information that can't fit into the current model. Both of those are part of the learning process. You've definitely had the experience of both of those things. The accommodation is the one that's a lot more cognitively complex. But scaffolding supports both of them. Another theory to mention here is Vygotsky's zone of proximal development, which is a way to explain how a learner is able to incorporate new information of knowledge. And it's built around three levels. So the first level is the comfort zone, stuff the learner already knows, stuff they're completely capable of doing unassisted, and stuff that is, it just feels easy. And then there's a second level, which is the stuff that the learner can understand with help. They're not capable of getting there on their own. They need the support of a teacher, but they're able to incorporate that into their current knowledge, whether through assimilation or accommodation. And then the third level would be the out-of-reach zone. I like to call that the nope zone. It's where learning just can't happen. Sometimes it's referred to as the panic zone. And you may have had the experience of being in a class where you felt like this is overwhelming. I can't handle this. It's too much information. It's too hard. That means you're in the panic zone. And so the teacher's job is to help students sort of release themselves from that panic zone, move back into at least that second level, the zone of proximal development, because that's the place where learning can happen. The comfort zone is not about learning, it's about repetition, it's reinforcement, right? But new information, new knowledge, that comes through the zone of proximal development and leveraging that as a teacher. So the trick, obviously, is figuring out where that learner's zone of proximal development is. And that's not so easy, but it's something that gets easier with practice and it's something that's important for teachers to really keep their eyes on. You want your students to be stretching. In the last episode of this podcast, we talked about stretching, right? Stress and how that can be a motivator and a performance enhancer. But too much stress is 
not going to be conducive to learning. And so the teacher needs to keep the students in the stress zone, but not in the panic zone, right? And so scaffolding is the process where you would do this. You would recognize that there's a concept that you can build on, something that you've taught the students, something that maybe you've assessed them on, and you recognize that this is something that you're able to build on. They're capable of understanding that next little bit of this thing. And so you work with those students to bring them to that next level of understanding, to guide them there. And this relates back, obviously, to active learning. You're not going to want to just tell them the new information. You want to help guide them to it, and you want to help them experience it and interact with it. But it's about that balance of figuring out what it is that they should learn, what they're capable of learning next, and what's not going to be too overtaxing for them to learn. And this isn't to say that you should shy away from problems that are too hard for your students. It's not saying that at all. What I'm saying is be aware of where they are vis-a-vis -vis the learning experience and what that means for their retention and understanding. All right, let's move on. Let's do another one of our thought exercises. So I want you to think about what it means to say learning is measurable. Why did we say that? Give yourself a few seconds. I'll be here when you get back. So learning is measurable ties back to the scaffolding that we just talked about. You can't scaffold if you haven't assessed where your students are and what they understand. And so a teacher's job is to constantly assess the learner. And you can't call something learning if you can't measure it, if you can't assess it. There's no way to know that somebody's learned without assessment. And when I say assessment, I'm not talking about tests or quizzes. Those are actual assessments, obviously. But it doesn't have to be that formalized. In fact, all assessments should not be tests and quizzes. Things like a conversation with a student or a presentation, right? Those are assessments. And they're actually just as effective, if they're used well, as a test or a quiz in figuring out what a student knows. And so there's different types of assessments. There are formative assessments and there are summative assessments. A formative assessment, if you think of the root there to form, right? So that's intended to improve the learner's performance. So you would give a formative assessment such as responding to a draft of an essay, right? Give meaningful feedback that helps the learner improve in their final version. Whereas the summative assessment would be the final version. That's showing you what they're capable of doing and what they know. And both of those things are important. Don't let anyone tell you that you shouldn't do summative assessment. What we do want to think about is how not to just do summative assessment. And also how that summative assessment can be something other than potentially a test or a quiz. Maybe more authentic assessment. Something else that I tell our teachers is that assessment has to be observable and it has to be measurable. And we talked about measurable, right, but observable. You cannot infer what someone has in their brain. It is not possible. I wish it were. <laughs> but you can't make judgments about the quality of a student's preparation, and you can't make judgments about the quality of a student's effort because you don't know what they did to prepare for this experience unless you were actually at their home and you actually observed them do it. And regardless of COVID, 
it's just not a good idea for you to be present with the student at their home. So if we want to assess something, we have to actually see it happen. And it actually has to be something that we can measure. So there are different ways of assessing. You can assess a description of a concept. You can assess a project or a document or a test. You can also assess the way that students interact and talk to each other or the way that students talk to you about something. You can assess a demonstration of a skill that shows you what someone's capable of doing. Basically, anything that's observable is assessable. And so what I tell our teachers is what you get to assess is anything that you can see, which means you can assess what they know if they say it out loud or write it, and you can assess what they do if you see them do it. And that's it. That's all you get. So as a teacher, you have to find great ways to assess those things. You have to create opportunities for different types of assessment and use the formative assessment to help your students succeed at the summative ones. They're not traps, right? You better not be building traps in your summative assessments. You want your students to succeed at them. The whole point of the summative assessment is to say, I have learned the things that you needed me to learn. So the formative assessments should get the students there. And just as a wrap up to this section, the more that you assess your students through all of these methods that we talked about, the better their learning experience will be. Okay, the last of the educational principles. Learning is intentional. What do we mean when we say learning is intentional? Give yourself a second, think about that. So what we know after many, many, many years of educational research, as well as research into the fields of educational psychology and neuroscience and psychology, all sorts of research has gone into where we are today with regard to how we know people learn. We know that there are some extremely effective educational practices. We also know that there are some educational practices that are less effective. And so our role as teachers is to try to find the ways that we can teach according to what we know about the science of learning. And so one example of that I like to use is the primacy recency effect. So the primacy recency effect says that there's a, an initial period of best retention of what's being taught in a lesson. And it happens within about 10 or so minutes, maybe 15 minutes of the start of the lesson, that that period of time is the period when things will be most memorable. That's the primacy period. The recency period is at the end, and that's the second most memorable. So the thing that you start with is the thing that the students will remember the most, and the thing that you end with is the thing that the students will remember the second most. And what that means for teachers, the actual practical application of that, is it's not the best educational practice to start a class with a review of last night's homework, unless last night's homework is the thing that you need your students to remember today. A lot of teachers do this. It makes sense linearly, right? You just did the homework. Let's start by reviewing that, make sure you know what you know, and now we're going to move on to the next thing. The problem is, that then is the most memorable part of the class. 
or to put it a different way, you've then used the most memorable part of the class to do a homework review. So what we ask our teachers to do is not to use that initial part of class for reviewing homework, to use that initial part of class to start introducing the most important stuff that they're going to be talking about today, and to use that to build the student's understanding in that initial 10 to 15 minutes, that sweet spot of learning, before they then go back and review the prior night's homework. It doesn't have to happen in perfect order. What we want to do is use what we know about education to create the most effective educational experience possible. Another thing that we know, and I mentioned this before, is that stress can be counterproductive for learning. So we did, in the last episode, talk about how stress can be a motivator, and it's definitely something that a teacher should take into consideration. It's just that sometimes when we focus on grades or we focus on tests or any of that stuff that adds stress to the student experience, the learning experience diminishes because of that stress. It actually shuts down, stress shuts down the prefrontal cortex of the brain. It, if you have enough stress, that leads your brain to reverting to its sort of animal instincts and when you hear the fight-or-flight response, that's a response to life-threatening levels of stress. You're not thinking about deep things when you're running from the bear. And again, it's not that we want to remove stress completely. It's that we just want to think about how we leverage stress as we work with our students. Is the stress in this situation going to be a useful motivator? Is it going to push them out of their comfort zone? Is it going to shut down their learning? And based on that, make the decision of how to use it. But don't just let it happen. I mentioned neuroscience before. And something else that we've learned about the brain is that neural pathways are formed. Connections between neurons are formed by the act of thinking, right? Experiencing new information and trying to store it in your brain. That creates those pathways. The prediction that we tried in this podcast creates neural pathways even before you know a concept. And the more that you practice that concept, the more that you work with that concept, the more durable those connections become. There's a process called myelination, where the neurons actually form a chemical sheath that increases the speed at which an electrical impulse can travel, which increases essentially the speed of your thought and the efficiency of your thought and how well you can remember something. And when you forget something, it's because you've not been practicing it and that myelin sheath has broken down. There's actual physical changes in your brain. It's so cool because of learning. And so there are techniques that we can use to reinforce that, will, that we know will create those neural pathways. And one of those techniques is spaced repetition. So you've probably heard this advice. Don't go cramming the night before the test and expect what you remember the day of the test to be the same thing that you remember far down the road. It's just not going to happen. It's going to, you'll forget it. You've probably had the experience of taking a final exam in high school or college and coming back the next semester having forgotten just about everything that was on that final exam. Spaced repetition says instead of cramming, the way that you should learn is to learn in small chunks and 
by spacing those chunks out over time. And what's really interesting about spaced repetition is that the longer you go between those learning moments, the more durable your understanding and your retention will be. You would think that maybe doing this three days in a row would be the way to do it, but actually it would be doing it maybe on Monday, then on Friday, then on the next Friday. And each time you do that, your memory gets more and more durable because you've started to forget. Another thing that we work with our teachers on is helping to build our students' growth mindset. Growth mindset is a term that Carol Dweck developed. It's a mindset that says, I can do anything that I'm putting my mind to, I can learn, as opposed to, this is really hard, I can't do it. And it's not, there's no definite way to change someone from a fixed mindset to a growth mindset, but one of the things that we tell our teachers, and this is right from Dweck, is that you can adjust a fixed mindset pretty simply by adding yet. So when somebody comes to you and says, I can't do math, you can say, I, no, you, you just can't do math yet. And so essentially a growth mindset is a belief in the student's ability to change and improve through effective effort. And that's actually a really important thing to keep in mind, that what we're interested in developing is effective effort, not amazing results. The amazing results will come from effective effort, but the effective effort is the thing that the student needs to internalize. That's the thing that they need to see as the key result, not the end product necessarily, but what got them there. And so when we try to build students' growth mindsets, we're trying to praise effective effort more than we're trying to praise results. You don't talk about necessarily getting an A on the test. You talk about what got them the A. And I want to just end with a little bit about adult learning because adult learning is somewhat different from children's learning. The term pedagogy that you may have heard of actually means teaching children, whereas andragogy means teaching adults. And there's a difference in how children and adults learn. There's a lot of similarities, and we actually draw very heavily on both pedagogical concepts and andragogical concepts because of the, the way that people learn and how similar it is in some ways. But there are some things that we know about adult learning that are really crucial to take into consideration. One of those things is that adult learners look for relevance and meaning. They are not interested in just learning for the sake of getting a grade. They're interested in learning for the sake of being able to do something with that learning. So what we teach our teachers to do is to make the learning as relevant and compelling as possible for the students. And that could mean relating it to your own professional experiences. That could mean relating it to the students' experiences. That could mean talking about the value of the thing in the field. Whatever that is, make it not, this is something that you just need to know, which is that thing that we've all experienced in school at some point where a teacher said, Okay, so last time we did chapter four, we finished with the test, now we're on to chapter five, here we go. That's not going to be effective for an adult learner. The adult learner needs to know why 
they're learning the thing that you need to teach them. And so one of the things that we work with our teachers on is developing a hook, a compelling reason for learning for everything that they teach. And so that hook is the thing, it's like a fish hook, right? It, you, you bait the hook and you lure the fish. We're trying to lure the students to learn. So creating a really effective and compelling hook is something that we work a lot on with our teachers. So those are the Hacker U educational principles. And before I do any sort of summary, I want you to just think back, see if you can remember what those four principles were and a little bit about what they mean. I'll give you a few seconds here. So again, those principles were learning is active, learning is scaffolded, learning is measurable, and learning is intentional. And I'm not going to go back over what they all mean. If you're not sure, you can rewind this podcast and go and review. So that's all for now. And thanks for learning with us. Did you enjoy this podcast? Please consider leaving a rating or review wherever you found it. And please also recommend it to your friends. Thank you.